Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This replay of a live broadcast titled, Let's Examine Collaborative Patient Management in ASCVD Risk Reduction, is provided by Medtelligence. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Thank you so much for joining us today for our program on Let's Examine Collaborative Patient Management in ASCVD Risk Reduction. We as pharmacists play such an important role in today's managed care environment. Having an informed dialogue with prescribing physicians is crucial when we are using a team-based approach to manage these most oftentimes difficult to treat patients. Welcome to AMCP eLearning Day's Virtual Satellite Symposium. I'm joined by Dr. Charles Vega, who's a primary care physician. We're breaking down the differential biological effects of omega-3 fatty acids and the clinical implications of major clinical trials. We'll also cover practical considerations for using a team-based approach to manage ASCVD risk. Our learning objectives for the day are to discuss biologic effects of omega-3s and their mechanisms of action. We want to engage with physicians to interpret the recent major clinical trials and have a greater competence to discuss the use of icosapent ethyl and define the shortfalls of dietary supplements for ASCVD management. I'm Dr. Mary Catherine Cheely, a clinical pharmacist. And I'm Dr. Charles Vega, a family physician. And uh, I think I will take it away with the burden of heart disease today. And so I'll be providing a little bit of an overview of heart disease, which is something that you know we're all familiar with as healthcare professionals. And then we'll be going into lipid management. And so um, I'm going to start with this slide. It's just a nice reminder, uh, you know, for me as a primary care physician, that when you have um, uh, cardiovascular atherosclerotic disease in one place in your body, uh, you've had a stroke, you've got a TIA, you have peripheral artery disease, you have it in other parts of your body as well. It affects your kidneys, et cetera. And so we want to treat the patients holistically because the number one killer for these patients and for Americans overall is uh, heart disease. So still the number one uh, cause of death is heart disease. Number, uh, number five is stroke. And if we are able to manage risk factors for these patients, we could dramatically reduce uh, the number of heart attacks and strokes in the United States. And this is just another way to look at the top causes of uh, death in uh, 2021. You can see that COVID-19 is now registering as the third most common cause of death overall, but it has not supplanted cancer and heart disease, which have been firmly atop that board for um, decades. Um, and it's not just a problem in the United States. Globally, cardiovascular disease uh, affects 4% of the global population um, and is increasing overall um, across the world as a proportion of uh, cause of death. Now, uh, we, I see a lot of folks who have suffered myocardial infarctions, who have suffered uh, strokes, who already have uh, vascular procedures uh, to address um, these significant issues. And unfortunately, many of them still will go on uh, to, uh, to develop another event. Uh, so, you know, that atherosclerosis, we can manage it. We don't really cure it. And particularly if you're older and you continue to have a number of risk factors, dyslipidemia, uncontrolled diabetes, uncontrolled blood pressure, all of those strikes count against you. And maybe it's not another heart attack that you have, but the next episode is a stroke or a critical limb ischemia. And so we really want to be cognizant of all patients who have been diagnosed with um, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, but particularly those who are older and who have uncontrolled risk factors. 
And how do we control the risk factors? One of the principal ways we do so is to uh, control their LDLC. That's really the coin of the realm, right? That we use to, uh, to first assess patients' cardiovascular risk is looking at that LDL. It is an important number, but we can see from the Fourier trial that uh, unfortunately, even when you have the LDL under good control, which we would recommend, you know, under 70, under 55, uh, depending on the patient with a history of cardiovascular disease, we're using secondary prevention, we still don't necessarily uh, get to goal. We, we don't prevent every stroke, heart attack, and uh, cardiac event or uh, cardiovascular mortality event, unfortunately, with the use of very good drugs uh, like evolocumab in this study or just your high-dose statins, which we're going to use uh, very frequently for, for these patients. So there's still something uh, left, and we have to think about different domains. Um, we have to think about be going beyond LDLC. I think the one thing that we've kind of fallen a victim of is this idea with um, when it comes to managing lipids, it's just set it and forget it. Well, my patients has two stents in their coronary arteries. I'm going to put them on rosuvastatin 20, and now I'm done. I don't need to do anything else. They're going to be on a torvastatin 80 after their stroke, and so therefore I'm done. You know, I've got them on the highest intensity statin I can, um, and so therefore my work here is done. Actually, we should follow them up to look for some of these other potential uh, factors, including high triglycerides, but also sources of inflammation, uh, sources of hypercoagulability, um, where we can make a difference in, in treating these patients as well. So go beyond um, LDL and, and look for other risk factors, because unfortunately, those risk factors still count. I use uh, the ASCVD plus calculator from the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, it's a very useful tool. For me, it puts patients in the ballpark. It is not perfect. We know that it overcalls the risk of cardiovascular events, particularly in older adults, um, but at least gives me a, a nice objective means to measure a patient's cardiovascular risk and put them in one of these risk-based categories. If their risk is over 7.5%, I'm going to be thinking about statin therapy. If it's over 10%, it's at least time to start thinking about aspirin therapy. Uh, and, uh, and so it's, it's, a, it's a helpful tool. Now, uh, when we look at guidelines, uh, we want to make sure that uh, statins are first-line therapy. They are incredible wonder drugs that have saved millions of lives uh, around the world. Um, so in, in patients with, um, with a history of a cardiovascular event, when you're doing secondary prevention, of course, statins are critically important for those patients. Also, patients with substantially elevated LDLC levels, uh, 190 or more, uh, those who have diabetes, where we're going to treat them more aggressively, and most of my patients with diabetes are getting high-intensity statins, and those who fall in that calculated risk between 40 and 75 years old, and they have at least a 7.5% um, 10-year risk of cardiovascular disease, think about statins for them. But there are other factors. That's that's not it, and it can start with history. Um, you know, What about if they have metabolic syndrome? What about chronic kidney disease, which is its own separate um, risk factor? What about chronic inflammatory conditions, including rheumatoid arthritis? In and of itself, those chronic inflammatory conditions are cardiovascular risk factors, and they add to that, um, to that list of many of my patients. And being in primary care, I'm treating all of these conditions at the same time, um, and I'm cognizant of the fact that each one of these extra strikes 
uh, could be the thing that puts my patient out, unfortunately. So, so I really want to address them. Um, things that you can't control, like a person's race or ethnicity, certainly black adults and folks uh, from Southeast Asia too, to something to think about, have a higher risk of cardiovascular disease. Then there's uh, triglycerides and there's LP little a, there's apolipoprotein B. Uh, you can do ankle brachial index on patients. For these are really useful for patients who are kind of in that borderline range that maybe they're like in an 8% um, cardiovascular risk in the next 10 years. And probably the thing that's not listed here that uh, could change your decision-making most of all would be a coronary artery calcium score. In research, that's the one when you get a score of zero um, back on that or near zero for coronary calcium, um, their risk of having a cardiovascular event in the next 10 years goes way down. And so that patient probably, if they were borderline before, does not need a statin. So that's another thing to consider. But these, I think it's just good to be aware of these tools. Do I put my patients routinely through all of these tests? Absolutely not. Um, but the ones in borderline, I, I think it is worth thinking about. And it's just another chance to think about the patient holistically. That in my book never steers you the wrong direction. Um, I'm not going to get too far into this slide, but just to say that uh, we see a certain phenotype, uh, particularly with metabolic syndrome, where they have high triglycerides, a low HDL level, and this uh, small dense LDL level that's pretty high. And that is a particularly atherogenic uh, type of patient, unfortunately. And so something I'm going to watch very closely, and I'm going to be very uh, careful about controlling all of their risk factors. Um, and I'm going to think about, again, going beyond LDLC. Uh, so we know that triglycerides are another risk factor uh, for cardiovascular disease. And even folks who have their LD LDLC ad goal on a high intensity statin, um, when their triglycerides are not greatly elevated, we're not talking about levels of 300 here, we're talking about levels uh, of 150 or more which is really common in my practice, um, they, you, we do see that they have this additional cardiovascular risk, um, which is really unfortunate. The good news is there are things we can do about it. And this is a nice slide to, that visualizes how, um, you know, the, the lower you can go with triglycerides, the better. And there is this steady increase uh, that's fairly linear, up to about 200 um, milligrams per deciliter uh, for triglycerides. And after that, it, it sort of levels off um, but it shows that you know you don't have to have a very high triglyceride level, but if you have a 175, you have a 190, and certainly if you have a 230 or 260, uh, you're going to be um, at increased cardiovascular risk as well. And this, is, again, goes beyond frequently what statins can do for patients because statins aren't going to be highly effective for lowering uh, triglycerides. Why is this? I'm not going to belabor this too much, but um, there's a couple things that the triglyceride-reached lipoproteins um, are much more inflammatory. They're pro-inflammatory, and the more inflammation you have, you create more unstable plaques are more likely to break off and cause uh, cardiovascular events. Um, and they're also incorporated more readily um, into uh, the arterial intima. So they, they're better at plaque formation, they create more unstable plaques both bad news when it comes to uh, comparing triglycerides, say, with LDL. And so we, we are effective. I, you know, I have, if my patients with diabetes is, is not on a statin, I'm wondering why that is. Um, and um, I'm probably, if they really have a true intolerance to statins, 
uh, which MK will, I think, will talk about in a few minutes. Um, you know, I'm going to at least give them on um, uh, azetamibe or uh, something else to help lower their, their risk. Um, but so many of those patients do come from that metabolic syndrome uh, phenotype. That's, that's where they started. Now they have type 2 diabetes as well. And we can see that one in three statin-treated patients with type 2 diabetes have a triglyceride level of at least 150 or more. Um, same thing with cardiovascular disease. These folks have these additional risk factors. And they, and they also have you know, increased you know, apolipoprotein B levels, for that matter, as well. And it's the triglycerides that are helping to drive that increased cardiovascular risk in another uh, cardiovascular event. This is, um, you know, the, there's guidelines uh, that are really helpful. The algorithms are, are quite helpful. Um, what it comes down to now, when you have a patient with cardiovascular disease and you control their LDL and you get them to their goal, be it less than 75 or less than 55 for their um, LDL cholesterol, and their triglycerides remain elevated uh, above 150, uh, you can think about ethyl. So that's what these, uh, these recommendations state. Um, so that's for folks with established cardiovascular disease. Uh, for folks with diabetes, you can also consider ethyl, um, but you really want to get that statin up to the maximum tolerated dose and reevaluate how are they doing with their triglycerides. Also, um, a big thing in my practice, watch for secondary causes of hypertriglyceridemia. Th those are things we often can control, especially with medications we may prescribe. So we'll be careful with that. And we'll go over that in a second. If they don't have cardiovascular disease or diabetes and they have a, um, a mild increase in, uh, in triglycerides, of course, lifestyle changes go without saying here. Um, but also, we're going to focus more on using a statin for those folks because it's really well proven. And then very elevated triglyceride levels, which I do see in my practice as well on a fasting sample that's repeated and we know it's true. Um, you know, that's where we're going to use a fibrate. Think about uh, prevention of pancreatitis. So secondary causes of hypertroglyceridemia. So there's certain things we can't do much about. The patient's diabetes is, is probably there. We want to control it. If they um, have, if they overuse alcohol, that's a big factor. And then think of like these really common things I see syndromically in the same patient all the time. Diabetes and chronic kidney disease go together like hand and glove. And unfortunately, th those both promote higher levels of uh, triglycerides. If you have uncontrolled hypothyroidism, that can do it too. And if you have those inflammatory diseases, we see higher rates of, um, of triglycerides as well. And so therefore, uh, I'm, I'm really thinking about uh, these conditions and trying to keep them under control as much as possible. And one thing I don't want to do is iatrogenically worsen that triglyceride profile particularly with drugs like glucocorticoids and um, oral estrogens. But I also um, think about using uh, non-selective beta blockers. Um, try to stay away from those. Diuretics, that's a tough one to leave behind because so many of my patients uh, need four drugs to control their hypertension, unfortunately. So that might be the last one I pull off because sometimes it's if it's controlling blood pressure or, or a small bump in, bump in triglycerides, I'd, I'd probably trade the, the, the blood pressure becomes more important. Um, but it's something I'm cognizant of. And so, I, of course, I try to stay with more calcium channel blockers, uh, RAS inhibitors that are going to be neutral when it comes to the triglyceride profile. Uh, diet and exercise really do work. You know, you don't have to lose a ton of weight. Uh, we know that 5% uh, loss of body weight among obese individuals does make a significant difference in terms of metabolic parameters. 
and that's a great start point. We now have you know different drugs that are available. Um, the uh, yeah the um, GLP one agonists have, have emerged as as a, as good agents, particularly if diabetes happens to be present, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. Um, so I really try to work with my patients, and there's and I also tout the other benefits of of having a healthy weight when it comes to GERD and the risk of arthritis and the risk of cancer may be a good motivator for patients. So really try to optimize diet and exercise, and think about medical therapy too. Medical therapy is very important for, uh, for our patients with hyperlipidemia, um, starts with a statin, so you optimize that dose. Um, I'm going to think about adding icosapent ethyl based on some uh, trial results I'll share with you. And then um, zetamide is something that I uh, use routinely as an add-on, has been shown to, um, to help reduce cardiovascular risk beyond maximized statin therapy. Um, and then the PCSK9 inhibitors. I will say I don't have a lot of access to those, um, but our friends in endocrinology and cardiology do. Usually by that time, they are going to be, I'm going to have them referred over um, because they um, have more chance of success uh, with prescribing those agents, which are um, a little hard to get in my setting. Uh, but, uh, but they are really, you know, of course, highly effective reducing LDL in particular. So um, here is a list of positive and um, neutral studies when it comes to um, add-ons to statins. So we know that zetamide uh, was effective through Improve It, and it was added to simvastatin 40 milligrams, so it wasn't necessarily a modern optimized dose, but it, it did help uh, further reduce cardiovascular events. Um, we know the PCSK9 inhibitors uh, can be effective beyond a statin. But just to mention in kind of hot news now in April 2022, that the prominent study, uh, which was looking at permafibrate among patients with diabetes and its ability to help further reduce uh, cardiovascular events uh, through its reduction in triglycerides, was stopped early because um, it was not working. So they, uh, they, the monitoring board found that it was likely to be a futile study, and so they stopped it early, and so that it will not be promoted uh, for that purpose. And so that was a bit of a, a surprise that it didn't, uh, didn't work. When it comes to triglyceride lowering with omega-3 fatty acids, which are some of the most popular supplements in the United States, not much of a record of achievement in terms of reducing cardiovascular events. And that's what we really care about here. It's, it's you know, you, if, even if there is a triglyceride reduction, um, we, what we really want to do is, is reduce patient-oriented outcomes. That means reducing a stroke, reducing the risk of heart attack, you know, not having to spend a week in the hospital after a coronary artery bypass. Those are the things that really matter to, to patients. And unfortunately, the vast majority of trials that mixed EPA and DHA just don't get there. Now, there is, th these are really close molecules, right? It's, it's, look at that, there's just a little bit of a difference uh, that separates DHA from EPA. Um, but if you look down here on the bottom right, um, you can see that uh, there's another couple of molecules that are pretty similar. You know, a couple extra covalent bonds and, and a hydrogen atom uh, changes uh, testosterone over to estrogen. And we know they have very differential effects. So, so those little changes can go a long way in terms of its physiological effects. And I think that the story of EPA and DHA is similar to that. It's, they, are, they are different. They have different effects uh, when you take them in the form of supplements. Um, and the JELUS trial was a study that there was a positive difference. So this, this uh, study, which looked at icospent ethyl previously, and I believe it was in 2007 published, um, did show a separation, so, which was you know, remarkable. So these are patients treated with statin or alone or statin with EPA. Um, they all had elevated um, uh, cholesterol levels. 
Uh, and so overall, there's a 19% relative risk reduction in the risk of major coronary events. So, so good news. And it, it has to do with the fact that this would, you know, they used EPA, and that does seem to be a key. So that jealous was was a nicely done trial, but reduce it was a I think a really important landmark trial. Now this took folks at uh, so this is secondary prevention. So these are folks at high risk of recurrent cardiovascular events. They were treated with a statin. They still had elevated triglyceride levels, at least 150. Um, and uh, you can see the uh, the design of the trial here, randomized dicosmet ethyl at a higher dose, four grams a day this time, or placebo. And they were followed for up to six years, I think was the uh, was about where they were followed, but we had data on five years. So a, a fairly long follow-up period with a, a primary endpoint of um, a composite of cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, uh, coronary vascularization, unstable angina requiring hospitalization. So all the, the major cardiovascular events we usually think of in these trials. And what did they show? That overall, icospan ethyl compared with placebo, in addition to a statin, uh, really did drive down um, the risk of the, uh, car the, the primary cardiovascular uh, endpoint. With the number needed to treat at 21, not too bad when we consider that we're trying to prevent strokes, heart attacks, and uh, hospitalization for unstable angina and cardiovascular death. Um, what about just looking at cardiovascular death, MI, and stroke alone? Um, a, a significant reduction of 26% with a number needed to treat of 28. So again, um, this really worked. This really worked in addition to statins. Um, even more effective when considering the full data, looking at recurrent events, not just looking at the first event after enrollment, but patients who went on during that five year or so a follow-up period to have multiple events, um, the, the uh, acosmin ethyl was even more effective with a relative risk of uh, 0.69. And then what about side effects? Um, generally, uh, really uh, well tolerated with not a, a lot of difference between icosapan ethyl and placebo in terms of common side effects, but there are a couple of things to note. One is there's uh, concern regarding the risk of bleeding associated uh, with the use of omega-3 fatty acids overall, and there was uh, some increase, particularly with more nuisance bleeding uh, among patients receiving icosapan ethyl. So this is something uh, to bear in mind, particularly if the patient has a history of you know, recurrent major bleeds, um, that might be a concern. Uh, I would also uh, use caution in patients who are taking anticoagulants. Um, so it's, I wouldn't necessarily, it doesn't preclude the use of icosapanethyl, it's just something to watch out for. And then uh, there was also a uh, slightly increased risk of uh, the onset of uh, incident atrial fibrillation or flutter associated with icosapanethyl versus placebo. Now, those are, those are serious things that I take seriously, but I look at the actual numbers needed to harm, and uh, they, they really are um, quite high uh, compared to the numbers needed to treat to get some of those better cardiovascular outcomes. And these are folks, remember, uh, they have um, high triglycerides, and they've had a cardiovascular event, um, and they're, they're being treated with a statin. So this is a high-risk group that is very, and I think that's one of the reasons they were able to show fairly dramatic outcomes in terms of that composite is that the patients were at higher risk, so they didn't have to enroll you know, thousands and thousands of patients as you would in a primary prevention study. So overall, for every 1,000 patients, you can see the data here as to you know, how many would benefit from mycosamin ethyl over at a four grams per day dose over five years. Um, interestingly, uh, the triglyceride level achieved didn't really correlate uh, so much with the outcome of that primary uh, composite outcome here. Uh, 
But what did correlate, and also I'll, I'll back up with other studies in a second, was um, the EPA level. The serum EPA level did uh, correlate with patients' response in terms of prevention of cardiovascular outcomes. So, um, so that's something to, to bear in mind. In terms of the uh, another trial that uh, this one concluded in, was published in 2020, the STRENGTH trial, large study uh, looking at, um, uh, this is where we're doing um, EPA and DHA together. Um, and this is another one that was stopped for futility because there was no, um, no added benefit associated uh, with the um, with omega-3 fatty acid combination uh, versus placebo. Um, and so, yeah, it just shows that we have a ways to go. So if you, if you look at the strength trial, it, it, this comes back to that serum level of EPA. EPA levels really seem to make a difference. So when you get above a certain threshold, as jealous and reduce it did, um, we see a stronger uh, response in terms of the um, in terms of in terms of reduction in cardiovascular events, and uh, even when they when they looked at um, in the strength trial, the highest tertile of EPA levels achieved. Um, even in that group, it still didn't separate in terms of cardiovascular events, and and the hypothesis is that the DHA that was included in that formulation of omega-3 fatty acids actually detracted from the positive effect of EPA. So EPA on its own seem, you know, if you look at the JELUS trial, if you look at reduce it, seems to be effective in the prevention of cardiovascular events beyond what a statin can do. Um, but adding DHA very well may kind of hold it back from achieving that level of efficacy. And um, so if we look at uh, this forest plot of, um, omega-3 fatty acids on cardiovascular outcomes, it, it supports what I just said earlier, that there is a does seem to be a benefit um, across different forms of uh, cardiovascular outcomes for EPA, but you add DHA and that benefit appears to be lost for the, for the most part. So the bottom line is that, uh, you know, reduce it shows that I go spent ethyl of four grams per day uh, was uh, effective. Take a patient who's had a cardiovascular event uh, who has triglyceride levels 150 or more, um, and they should be, and they they're on, they're maximized on their statin therapy, and of course lifestyle too. We have to think about that. Um, for those patients who still remain with that higher triglyceride level, yeah, icosapent ethyl can definitely be a, a strong benefit for them. And so overall, um, you know, we know that uh, cardiovascular disease number one killer, uh, very scary, um, and unfortunately, a lot of folks even after they get their statin therapy, have those ongoing risk factors, one of which is high triglycerides. Um, and as I said, we can do something about that now. Uh, so icosapent ethyl is recommended uh, by the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, uh, for the management of patients who persist with high triglycerides uh, despite a maximal uh, statin therapy. And it's generally well tolerated overall. Uh, and it has, it's associated with a, a significant reduction in cardiovascular events with a fairly low number needed to treat. Um, so overall, I, I think that, uh, again, it just makes me think, treat the patient holistically, look at all these cardiovascular risk factors uh, together, and triglycerides, blood pressure, diabetes, now smoking, um, you know, and, and, and being sedentary, all of them factor in there. And so we really want to push all those levers forward. Um, and we do have a, a, a great tool with icosapent ethyl uh, for the triglyceride part. And with that, I'm going to hand it off to MK, and she's going to talk about the pharmacist role uh, in this milieu.
Awesome. Thanks, Chuck. That was so great. I love the quick review of the data. I think you did a fantastic job at explaining kind of the building blocks. So I want to take it over and kind of put it in our pharmacist world and put it in our pharmacist light so that we can kind of springboard off of what our physician partners do with us. So the first thing I want to do is kind of take us through the role of the pharmacist in cardiovascular care. So I think we're all really aware from pharmacy school and all these different places that we are, in my opinion, the best patient educators about medications. Uh, we went to school for that. We did a lot of things for it, but it doesn't just stop there. So our drug therapy monitoring or our disease state management, especially when we're talking about medication therapy management is really important. And then like in your clinic and like in my clinic, Chuck, we do have pharmacists embedded practicing under collaborative practice agreements to actually make those treatment decisions for patients. And then in the managed care setting, there's all the different formulary management or stewardship or um, protocol development that really helps us help providers choose the right patients for drugs. There's a ton of different approaches to cardiovascular risk reduction, um, but it all is on the background of statin therapy, just like Chuck mentioned. It's really important to talk about getting our patients to their LDL cholesterol goal, but also getting them to their non-HDL goal, which triglycerides are a part of. And then I love that you called out inflammation because I feel like we don't necessarily think about inflammation enough, especially as pharmacists, um, and then diabetes management. All of these pieces make a huge difference because statins are lovely, high-intensity statins work, but not for everyone. So you can see in the Jupiter trial that some patients had a 50% reduction based on their baseline LDL cholesterol, and some patients didn't. Some people had more of an LDL reduction. But we do know that while that patient-specific response can be different per patient, for every 40 milligrams per deciliter of reduction in LDL cholesterol, there's about a 25% reduction in hard mace, so that cardiovascular MI and stroke. That's a big deal, especially when I'm the provider, the pharmacist working with that patient, making sure that I'm getting them to those goals, and I'm explaining to them why it's so important to take their drugs. But that, again, just talks about for every 40 milligrams per deciliter reduction in LDL cholesterol. We have trials, like, like Chuck went through, the Improve It study, Fourier, Odyssey Outcomes, that say there are adjuncts to statin therapy that make a big difference. What has not been proven is the class of fibrates or niacin. So it's important to understand that from the guideline side of things, fibrates and niacin really are not advocated to reduce ASCVD risk. They do have their place for other patients. They do have their, their place in therapy. But if you're talking about reducing ASCVD in the ACC AHA guidelines, the joint consensus statement, they really lean on azetamide or PCSK9 monoclonal antibodies. And that's because adherence to statin therapy is extremely important in these patients. We always have to have that backbone. They are extremely well tolerated. I'm going to say that again because I feel like we always hear this on the other side of it. And we'll talk about that in a second too. But statins are extremely well tolerated. Over three quarters of the general population can tolerate a statin at any dose. There are patients, about 10 to 20% of them, that which will have some statin intolerance. But overall, they are extremely effective at preventing recurrent or first ASCVD. And those adverse effects, the serious ones, are extremely, extremely low. 
then why is it so hard for our patients to take their drugs appropriately? I think a lot of it does come from statin intolerance, and it comes from this thing called the nocebo effect. So I know as pharmacists, we always hear of placebos, meaning I think this drug will do good things for me. But there's also the converse of that, and it's called the nocebo effect. So I think this drug will harm me. My great aunt Susie's best friend's daughter's dog told me that statins are going to make my big toe hurt. We've all heard it. We hear it at the counter. We hear it from patients in clinic. Um, but it's extremely important to understand that the nocebo effect is real and those patients still need to be treated with statins. However, we did a large study in 2018-19 called the STATE study. And that we actually polled 1,500 patients with perceived and real statin intolerance. And we asked them, hey, are you still on your drug or are you not on your drug anymore? Those patients who were still on their drug, which was a large proportion of patients, so about 1,200 of our 1,500 patients were still taking their medication. And those who were still taking a dose of a statin were, um, it was because the dose was either lowered or because it was switched to another statin. So all is not lost. If the patient can't take their first statin that you prescribed them, Chuck, we can try again, we can do another one, or it could be something as simple as lowering the dose. But understanding that patients do sometimes have issues with their statins is really important. And that's where we also will go back to the same graphic that Chuck used to show optimizing statin therapy is important. Most patients can tolerate it. Some cannot. And so then from there, I'm left with, do I take the LDL lowering pathway or do I take the triglyceride related pathway? And I can do both. I'm not limited to just one. So today I want to make sure that we kind of go through um, icosapent ethyl a little bit more from the pharmacist perspective. So let's dive in. Um, as of December 2019, which seems like eons ago, honestly, um, icosapent ethyl is now indicated by the FDA for cardiovascular risk reduction. It is an adjunct to maximally tolerated statin therapy in patients with a triglyceride of greater than 150, and they either have to be secondary prevention, so established coronary artery disease or uh, cardiovascular disease, or diabetes plus two risk factors. That's on top of the triglyceride um, greater than 500 indication that they've always had since launch, but it is important to know that the icosapent ethyl does have that additional indication now. It's also included in 19 medical association guidelines or recommendations. So the data from Reduce It and the data from Jealous that Chuck mentioned is super important in how all of us are practicing these days. But also, like was mentioned earlier, DHA and EPA are not the same. And I think this is really interesting from a pharmacist perspective because, again, we all did medicinal chemistry and we all went back to see those double bonds and the extra hydrogen that really does kind of make a difference in some of our drugs. So fish oil dietary supplements have a mixture of DHA and EPA. 50% of that product is nastiness and junk. And I don't know about your pharmacy school, but in my pharmacy school, we used to joke that dietary supplements we could make in the bathtub in the backyard and put them in a capsule and, you know, get them on the shelf. Because remember, they're regulated as food. They're not regulated as drugs. So there is a lot of saturated fat and other things, which we'll get to in just a second, with those fish oil dietary supplements. There's a combination omega-3 prescription product. Um, 
I don't know if some of you are as old as I am, but I remember back in the day when it was called Omicor, they rebranded it as Lovaza, and there is a generic omega-3 ethyl esters um, on the shelf as well. That is almost a 50-50 split between DHA and EPA, but again, a mixed product. So remember, Chuck taught us earlier, the mixture of EPA and DHA is not seen, we have not seen the cardiovascular risk reduction with a mixed product. And then there is an EPA-only prescription product, which is icosapent ethyl. It is a pro-drug. Um, <clears throat> I think it's important and can't be overstated enough about those dietary supplements. So I want to take a little bit of time to go through those. This picture is worth a thousand words, in my opinion. Um, you can see in the little picture with the vials that on the left, the dietary supplement is gross, for lack of a better term. Um, it's kind of chunky and fatty, and that's because there is saturated fat in there. So I was talking to some of my nurses in clinic earlier today in our cardiac clinic, and we were talking about fish oil dietary supplements. And I told them, you might as well just melt butter and drink it with your fish oil if you're going to take it over the counter, because that's what you're doing. But you can see on the right-hand side that the prescription omega-3s are much cleaner. They don't have that saturated fat in there. But for that DHA-EPA combination product, even the prescription one, oxidation can happen. And that's when it gets that kind of nasty, fishy smell for patients. Um, so the branded icosapent ethyl product is highly purified. It is EPA only. And so when we're talking about risk reduction for those patients, it is really important that we understand we're not talking about combination products. We're not talking about dietary supplements. We are talking about icosapent ethyl uh, EPA only products. And this is why this, this one about contrasting the effects of EPA and DHA really takes me back to pharmacy school. So let's take a minute on this one because I think it's super fascinating as a pharmacist. EPA is on the left side and you can see that it does a great job at stabilizing the membrane. It inhibits oxidation, which we all know oxidation and inflammation cause a huge problem within our vasculature, um, but it also decreases interleukins. It, it is much more stabilizing of a, of a molecule. DHA, you can see it has that curl at the end of it, um, and it does not stabilize the membrane. It increases membrane fluidity and has this, um, it, it doesn't have the antioxidant effects that EPA does have. It's mainly concentrated in the brain and retinal membranes, which is why if you're thinking about, you know, but DHA is helpful, it's in baby formula. It is for our babies, but when we're talking about cardiovascular risk reduction, we need membrane stabilization and we need a decrease in oxidation. And that's what EPA will, will give you. And just to drive home the point a little bit more of the contrasting effects of EPA and DHA, here is an amazing video by Preston Mason to kind of just solidify it a little bit more. The following illustrates the contrasting effects of omega-3 fatty acids on cell membrane structure. Omega-3 fatty acids are incorporated into the membrane bilayer. The membrane consists of phospholipid and cholesterol. Icosapentaenoic acid, or EPA, and docosahexaenoic acid, DHA, are incorporated into the phospholipids of the membrane bilayer. Preclinical data show EPA stabilizes cell membranes, while DHA undergoes rapid conformational changes that promote cholesterol domains. 
The membrane orientation of EPA versus DHA results in contrasting effects on the surrounding membrane environment. Specifically, the rapid conformational changes of DHA disorder surrounding phospholipid acyl chains and increases overall membrane fluidity. This also results in the self-aggregation of cholesterol into discrete domains. This occurs throughout the cell membrane. As seen above on the surface of the membrane, these distinct cholesterol domains coexist with disordered membrane regions that are enriched with DHA and depleted of cholesterol. By contrast, EPA inhibits cholesterol domains and preserves membrane stability, resulting in uniform lipid distribution. These different membrane interactions result in unique lipid antioxidant activity for EPA. In atherosclerosis, lipid peroxidation and associated damage to membrane components promotes cholesterol domain formation, disrupts membrane organization and stability, and damages membrane-associated proteins with loss of function. In this process, oxygen-free radicals attack the phospholipid acyl chains, resulting in cleavage and loss of normal structure. In membranes consisting of DHA, the unfavorable conformation of this omega-3 fatty acid allows the oxygen-free radicals to travel unimpeded through the phospholipid bilayer. This results in widespread lipid oxidation and loss of overall membrane integrity. By contrast, EPA prevents oxidation of the membrane by free radicals as it quenches the reaction, thereby preventing their propagation and phospholipid bilayer damage. I love that you went through some of the warnings and the precautions, but I kind of want to give the pharmacist perspective on this. Atrial fibrillation did happen in the patients in the REDUCA trial. It was not necessarily new onset AFib or new onset A-flutter. It was in patients who had a baseline of atrial fibrillation, and then they saw an increase in hospitalization in those patients. So me as the pharmacist dispensing this drug or me as the pharmacist just to, uh, trying to figure out if this is the right option for the patient that's in front of me, I'm going to think through their, their atrial fibrillation history. Are they admitted four times a year for AFib? Then icosapenethyl is probably not the right option for them. But if they have stable, persistent AFib, they're on their antiarrhythmic or they're on their anticoagulation and have never, ever been hospitalized for AFib with RVR, then that's certainly something that I can think about for them. Allergic reactions are something that I get asked a lot, both from my physician partners, but also from my um, retail pharmacists, because it'll come up or the patient will tell them, oh yeah, I'm allergic to shellfish. Um, that is... Always a concern because, again, it's, it is an omega-3, which can be found in other fish products, but it is so highly purified that it really wasn't seen in, um, in the study, and it hasn't been seen in post-market, but it is in the label, so it is something we need to think about, and again, that's where I have a conversation with my patient. So, Ms. Jones, 
what was your allergic reaction to shellfish or whatever fish it is? And she says, oh, I just, you know, my left pinky swelled up a little bit and then I was fine. Okay, then this might not be a bad option for you. But if I ask Miss Jones that question and I'm dispensing this to her and she says, oh my gosh, I got admitted to the hospital and I was in the ICU, then I'm calling Chuck back at his clinic and said, did you know that she had an allergic reaction like this? And he's going to say, no, MK, I had no idea. And then he's going to be like, hey, thanks a lot. We're great partners in this. We should keep doing this. So um, allergic reactions possible, but again, is on the patient. And then bleeding is something that's kind of well-known with most um, omega-3 products. There is an increased risk of bleeding. So again, think about your patients who are on antithrombotic medications or a DOAC or something else and assess that risk with the patient. That one is something that I think does definitely need to be a conversation with the provider as well. Um, so those are ones that I think from the pharmacist side are most important to us. But again, always going back and talking about the history with your patient and not just necessarily what's in their chart or what is kind of coming across um, is really important to ask them about their own history of their disease states. So let's talk about being at the window with the patient. Here's the things that I think as pharmacists are most important. So these are kind of my biggest counseling points when I'm talking to other pharmacists or when I'm talking to the residents that I train as well. Dietary supplements are not the same as prescription omega-3 products. And prescription omega-3 products are not equal. So omega-3 ethyl esters, which is the mix DHA and EPA, is not the same as icosapent ethyl. I know that they're all under the same umbrella, but they really are three distinct things and are not interchangeable. So it's really important that us as pharmacists understand when we're getting that prescription for icosapent ethyl, we are filling icosapent ethyl. If the insurance says, hey, it's got to be omega-3 ethyl esters, they're not the same. And we need to make sure that we're communicating that back to our physician partners and we're saying, hey, this requires prior authorization. The insurance, you know, thinks that they prefer omega-3 ethyl esters, but remember they're not the same. And that gives you number one credibility, credibility with the provider, but also you're making the provider's life a little bit easier and trying to train them and tell them they're not the same. Once you get that prescription for icosapent ethyl and it is approved and it's going to go to the patient and the patient's at the window in front of you, they must take two grams twice a day with food. I cannot tell you how many times I have patients that just pop one and they're like, no, nah, I'm good. No, that's not how this works. Two grams twice a day with food every day. And then I think it's really important to talk about safety concerns with patients. The last thing that I want to touch on, and Chuck, I actually really want to get your kind of insight on this too, from the, from your prescriber side. So I know my prescriber side, but PBMs and pharmacy insurance companies don't scare me. So I kind of want to hear your thoughts on this. So let's, let's talk a little bit through insurance approval for any ASCDD medication. So typically there's at least one drug per class that's on the formulary. That doesn't mean that it's on the formulary and you can have it at any time that you want. A lot of times, especially for these, you know, quote, specialty medications or the ones that are newer to the market, it's going to require prior authorization or it's going to require a step therapy. So if you are in your clinic as the pharmacist um, and you're helping with prior authorizations or you're training your um, staff, your physicians or your nurses on how to do prior authorizations, 
it's really important. These are kind of the two key things that I think about. Number one is picking the right patient. So train your physicians. You can't have whatever you want. Very sorry, Chuck. You can't just say, I want it. You have to pick the right patient, which I think our providers do a really good job of staying up on evidence. Pick the right patient first, and then make sure in your documentation in the notes, which I know is a challenge when you have 12 patients in a half day or 15 patients in a half day, but the documentation in your note is really important to getting that approved for your patient. Cite the guidelines. Cite why. Miss Jones is a 67-year-old woman. She has diabetes and hypertension, and she had an MI a year ago. Her triglycerides are 250. I need icosapen ethyl. If you say that in your note, then it makes it a lot harder for the insurance company to deny you. They do still have, you know, the boxes that you have to check and you have to send them documentation and all of that. But if you are grounded in evidence, it does make it a a lot harder for them. They'll still do it sometimes, but if they do, don't take no for an answer. Try and try and try again. Um, Chuck, have you actually done any peer-to-peers? I'm kind of interested. Um, well, yes. So I've discussed, um, you know, these kinds of cases with our pharmacy and with not just our pharmacy and our local, you know, federal qualified health center, but other pharmacies as well. Uh, first, I think it's worth pointing out that, um, I'm only moderately afraid of insurance companies working. I've been working on it. So I'm pretty proud of that. And second, I know that I can't always get what I want, but I tend to get what I need. And what I need for patients is good lipid management. So, and I need a pharmacist partner to help me out who can start the process and can be communicating. And you're right, it's it's incumbent upon you know me to be able to cite the uh, guidelines, but then really advocate for the patient by getting my note correct um, and having the right laboratory values in there having the right diagnosis codes on board, and then in my plan actually describing why narratively that it's, uh, you know, echospinethyl is a good choice for this patient or anything. I I think PCSK9 inhibitors are kind of in the same ballpark as as, as the discussion we're having right now because I've done the same thing with those drugs. Um, and and you're absolutely right in that uh, it's it sometimes takes more than one attempt, but usually we do win at the end of the day. Um, and I also have the uh, the backing uh, of uh, specialty colleagues. So if they if they especially because we're talking a lot of folks with secondary prevention, they may already be seeing cardiology. I can pull on that. You know that as a support as well. And then generally, it, it does take a while sometimes. You know we're talking process for for my practice that so can take months. But um, but it's, but it's worth it. And um, and then once we get it approved, it usually is a smooth sailing from there. Yeah, I think what you described is exactly what I try to teach my providers as well. Do it once, have a positive outcome, and then replicate that over and over and over again. And I think that's kind of the easiest. It's how we treat anything, right? Like, it's how I treat blood pressure. Hey, I got a good outcome with amlodipine in this patient. I'm going to use it in that patient. So I, I think the more you do it, the more it helps too. And, and also, I think it's worthwhile that, you know, to, to definitely have integrity on this issue, too. And a patient who doesn't qualify, who really doesn't seem to, you know, they, their triglyceride profile doesn't fit. They don't have the history of, you know, a prior cardiovascular event. And in fact, their cardiovascular risk isn't that high. You know, I'm not going for that patient and, you know, going that extra effort because I'm not really sure it's going to help. The evidence doesn't necessarily support it. And I feel that that corrupts my integrity a little bit when I'm trying to get prior authorizations uh, completed overall. Yeah, that's a great point. I think that makes a huge difference that you can 
kind of figure out this patient is the right one and this patient's not the right one and then right. kind of focus your efforts where it needs to go. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess, you know, how else can we, is there anything else I can do as in, in my part as a, you know, as a primary care uh, provider to, uh, besides identifying the patient and doing the steps we just talked about, is there anything else that we're leaving out? So I think it's really important. Um, I think, again, we as pharmacists do great at the medication education for the patient. But one thing that we don't really have a lot of good time to spend with the patient is going to be on what their actual ASCBD risk is. It's easier for me. So, so yeah, you as the provider, I would love for you to, in the 2.2 minutes that you have with them, spend time explaining you're at high risk and this is why, and this is, you know, this is what I'm doing for that. I'll take the medication portion from there, but it's hard for me to convince a patient to take a medicine that they don't understand why they're taking it. And when I'm on the retail side, I have no idea why they're taking it. I don't have their lab values. So I think if you kind of start that conversation and then we can come in behind it and make sure that they're taking it appropriately, that's a match made in heaven. Yeah, it, it's a real challenge sometimes to, to get to get too far into statistics when I'm working with a population with very low health literacy can be actually counterproductive and yeah. messages get crossed all the time. You know, one of the things I find that's really helpful is um, on my e-prescriptions, I include notes for the pharmacy. I hope they're read because I really do try to explain why we're doing what we're doing. And so that's something, uh, there's a point there that you can reinforce to the patient. Uh, and I think that that's a very valuable feature because it's too hard to call. And, and, and you know, I know that uh, having conversations can be challenging on both our ends, but mm -hmm. those small notes are electronic and fix the prescription. So they, you know, they should be read, I think are a great tool. Yeah, I think so too. I love that. I wish more of my providers would do that. And I might actually start doing that to my pharmacies as well when I'm prescribing things. <laughs> that's a great idea. Yeah, it, it definitely helps move things ahead. That way, we're again, we're a team and we're all playing uh, you know, on the same same side, trying to trying to achieve the same objective. Absolutely. I agree. My patients, I also work in an indigent healthcare system and sometimes explaining things to them is counterproductive, but I find that even if I can latch onto one small little piece, hey, your dad had a heart attack, you had a heart attack, you have kids, clearly there's something going on here we need to do a better job at, at mitigating that risk, then I think that that's, even if it's one tiny little little portion, it does make a difference in helping them be more adherent to their therapy. Yeah, and to clarify, I always explain things to my patients, but when you give a lot of details about seven oh different subjects in a, in a patient who, you know, has a, uh, you know, is functionally illiterate in English and Spanish and, you know, has a, you know, the maximum fourth grade education, it's better to just go through some bullets and here's the, yeah. here's the top three things that we're going to achieve today. Because when you try to achieve 12 things, you're probably going to achieve zero. Achieve three things, you, you'll probably get two. I totally agree. And especially from the primary care side, like you guys have so many things to deal with in one visit. Yeah. In my lipid clinic, I have one. So it, it does make it a lot easier on my side. <laughs> I will say a lot of my patients don't come in with the chief complaints of my lipids. They don't. Um, but but it's, <laughs> I, I'm always hanging back, going through the headaches and the shoulder pain and the sore throat and the COVID fear. And then, and then eventually I'll get to my agenda, which is your lipids. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, there's an art to it. It's an art. But it's, it's, it's a really, it's a, I'm blessed to be able to do it. 
I'm blessed to be able to work with great people like you. So, um, so yeah, and and mostly I'm blessed to, to you know, that these patients allow me in their lives and um, and try to help them out. It's a, it's really a, an incredible experience. So I'm always grateful. Thank awesome. you very much for uh, for talking through this with me. Yeah, I appreciate it. I think we should do more of these. I think we should have more fun hanging out and talking. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, unfortunately, that's all that we have time for today. So I want to thank our audience for listening in. And thank you so much, Chuck, for joining me today and sharing all of the different ways that you help your patients. It was great hanging out with you. No, thank you. I I really appreciate it. I know everybody's really busy. So it was wonderful that the audience took the time. And MK, you're always an inspiration. So thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Medtelligence. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash Thank you for listening.